Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your loving kindness to us through your word. You are God who has spoken to us. And even though when what is spoken uh, is often difficult to hear or confusing to understand, it is for our good. And so we submit ourselves to this text this morning um, and ask that your Holy Spirit work in our hearts to accomplish all that he would wish to do so that we as a body might do as we just sang, that we might glorify your name in all the earth. We pray this in your name. Amen. One of my favorite movie lines is from the 90s film, The Matrix. And there's one scene where this weak, nerdy Neo is in this training facility, and he's about to have this battle with a guy who is most certainly going to whoop him. Um, But while he's standing there, uh, behind the scenes, someone is downloading packets of information into his head. And there's a point where his face turns from terror to confidence as he looks at his opponent and he says, I know Kung Fu. I love it. I say that to my wife all the time when I feel confident. (laughs) I know Kung Fu. I remember taking Greek in seminary and just wishing that I had someone who could download a packet of information into my brain. It shows us the power of knowledge to transform our lives. And maybe you have a similar desire in your life right now. If we could just warp into your brain the answers to your certification exam, your life would be different. Or maybe you could know immediately the details of who you will date and marry and its season and its time, when you'll have kids or what's wrong with your health. We imagine that knowing all of these bits of information would have a profound transformative effect on our lives. But the pastor and author, A.W. Tozer, once famously said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If there's any sort of data packet that could be downloaded into our brain to change our lives, there's nothing more significant than this. We could learn Kung Fu and it would certainly shape our lives, probably, maybe, I think so. We could begin to think more clearly about our study habits and our calendars, and hopefully our grades would change. But Tozer's idea about nothing being more profound than our thoughts on God is rooted in the text that we're going to look at today in the book of Luke, as Jesus shares with us a uh, a parable. And what we know about Jesus, as we see in this text, will inevitably shape us for better or for worse. That is to say that each of us already know something of Jesus. We already know something about God, and there is nothing more transformative or influential on how you live than what that piece of knowledge is. And actually, today's text comes to us as a correction. Jesus knows that people, as he's nearing Jerusalem, already have thoughts about him and his mission. And in verse 11, Luke says this, as they heard these things, that's the events of Zacchaeus, Daniel taught on last week, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So this parable is coming from Jesus in order to correct the crowd's understanding of the nature of the kingdom of God and the timing of the kingdom of God 
but more specifically, how the information of the nature and the timing changes the way faithful disciples live. And my prayer today is that it might have the same effect on us today, ransoming us from what is a terrible condemnation that will befall us all if we do not have our vision corrected on Christ and the gospel. Now, out of all the parables so far in Luke, perhaps behind only the dishonest manager we looked at a few months ago, this is one of the more difficult parables to understand. And there's certainly a parallel, if you have your Bible open, uh, with what we're going to see next week. Here, Jesus gives a parable of a king entering back into a country. And next week, we're going to see that Jesus, as the Messiah king, enters into Jerusalem. And yet... That's not the entrance Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about his entrance to Jerusalem and the establishment of a worldly kingdom. He's talking about his second entrance, his second advent, when Jesus, having gone into Jerusalem, being crucified, dead, and buried, as we'll confess at the end of the sermon today, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. It's that re-entrance that this parable is all about and how we live until that day. Now, this parable, if we're not careful in studying it, we could come to a bunch of different conclusions in it. Maybe uh, if you're a type A firstborn like me, you read this parable and you say, this is all about what I already knew. I got to do good to get good. I've got to put in the time and put in the effort. And if I'm good enough and productive enough, then Jesus will accept me. Or maybe you're someone here who's seeking Jesus, and this is confirming your priors of there's just a petulant, angry Jesus awaiting me at the end of all things, so why waste my time? Or perhaps we read our Bible quite politically, and we see this as the biblical justification of capitalism as the primary way in which we should conduct and do business. Or maybe about reading, uh, maybe after reading about judgment and a slaughter, your only conclusion is that it was an odd day to try out a new church. But... The point of this parable is incredibly clear for us today, and it is this, is that Jesus shows us that faithful servants work while they wait for their faithful king. Faithful servants uh, or wait while they work for their faithful king. Whether they're working and waiting or waiting or working, it doesn't matter. It's about the faithful king. And that's what we'll see. What you think about the king and his kingdom shapes the way you live. If you've never studied the Bible before today, probably more than normal, you're going to be seeing the process of Bible study here. And so I encourage you to have the Bible open in front of you. Uh, If you have a screen, uh, that's great. If you don't have a Bible, we have ones you could take back in the back. Please go get one uh, and take it home with you. But what we're going to do as you have your Bibles open is first we're going to examine the tension of the kingdom, kind of painting the scene of the parable. Then we're going to see responses to the king, focusing on the three responses we see in the middle. And then lastly, we'll conclude with just a brief point of application for today. And so we'll begin by painting the scene with the first point, that is the tension of the kingdom. The tension of the kingdom. And in order to better understand the plot, we need to first understand the characters. And so first we're introduced to a nobleman or a good man. We don't know much about this man in the text, but at some point he's going to become king. He's got heir to a throne. And what we do know about him is communicated in his title. He is a noble man. And that title speaks to both his heritage and to uh, his character. He is, if this guy were a horse, he'd be Seabiscuit, right? He is well-bred. He is from a noble line. His family is of significance, but his character 
and the quality of his person is good and noble. So that's the nobleman who will become king. And then we see other people who are understood only in relationship to this nobleman. The first are servants. And then second, we see that there are citizens. And so these citizens, though not being his servants, understand the implications of this nobleman's authority, and that's actually what they take offense to. So we have the nobleman, we have the nobleman's servants, and we have citizens who will be under the nobleman's rule by the end. So those are the characters. Here's the plot in four parts. All of them, of course, naturally start with the letter D. And so first we see a delay. Verse 12 tells us, if you have your Bible open there, that our nobleman has to go into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean he's getting like a bonus kingdom far and away, that he's going to rule there and rule here. Uh, He's speaking about what was culturally normal at that time, where someone who had the right to the king, so all of you think of that rich historic example of Arendelle, right? It's coronation day, the doors are going to open, and and they're going to go get the kingdom, be acknowledged. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, and that is okay. Um, but that's what we're going to talk about with gospel friendship this Friday and Saturday. So please come and see. Uh, and, and so there's this, this idea where they're going, they're being acknowledged by the seat of power to be king, and then they're coming back to their kingdom with all the rule and authority of king. This is, in fact, uh, what was in top of mind for the original hearers of the day. It's what Herod the Great did in traveling to Rome. And then right before Jesus' birth, it's what Herod's two sons did, but with a a different uh, end, which we'll talk about in a moment. And it's this absence of the king, this delay of the king, that introduces uh, the tension of the parable. Because given the political tension and the transportation systems of the day, it would have been nearly impossible to know if and when this king was coming back And if he did come back at all, would he come with full recognition of his claim to the kingdom? And so the assumed tension was, when will this man come back? Will he come back? And what will we do as his subjects in the meantime? So that's the delay. And part of this is that in his absence, the nobleman gave his servants a duty. A duty while he was delayed in coming. Verse 13 says that calling his 10 servants, he gave them 10 minutes and said to them, engage in business until I come. So notice here, the nobleman's going away, but he doesn't want his kingdom to fall into disrepair. And so he gives generously seed funds and startup costs to his servants. And he says, Continue to build, continue to extend the kingdom uh, in my name, continue to do business and conduct publicly in affairs with others. And this would have been extremely normal for Middle Eastern practices that it's not noteworthy at all, except for what we read in verse 14, that it wasn't just citizens in a happy kingdom far away, that these servants, you know, were right in the vein of popular culture. But verse 14 says, but... His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And so here's the danger of the story. The soon-to-be king and his duly commissioned servants live in the midst of a hostile people serving an opposed king. 
There was a highly organized force against this king. They they kind of summoned people together and they sent them on the road to uh, protest to this king's coronation. And they did this because they did not want to submit to his rule. They did not like this noble man. And as I said, Jesus is actually alluding to what would have been a very uh, close historic reference in this day. And so Herod the Great's two sons both went to Rome to be acknowledged as king. They went with competing claims. And when, so when Archelaus went, Antipas stirred up a delegation who traveled with Archelaus, slandering him to remind Rome that this man was unfit to be king. But by the end of it, it was Archelaus who got the higher title and Antipas who received the lesser title. And that brought shame to his supporters and introduced a whole layer of political tension back home. That makes family dinners really awkward, doesn't it? Remember that time when me and all my friends hated you and traveled on the road with you and now you're our king. So what we can read here is the presence of these hateful citizens in regards to the king and to his servants would have been both a political and a physical danger. In such a climate as this, if if your guy lost the bid to the throne, your public identification with him could easily put you on the wrong side of the power balance and quite literally on the wrong side of the sword. This was a dangerous position to be in. If the angry citizens were to succeed these servants and their king would be in danger. But despite this, the king is confident he's going to return. And he says when he does return, there will be a deposition. This is the last plot. When the king comes back, everyone will be called to account. And you see that. You could certainly pick a side while he's gone. But in the end, the lines will fall firmly in accord to the king. How you lived in light of this king would define everything. And it's this day of accounting, this calling to account that Jesus spends most of his time on in the parable. And I want you to notice as we look at this that what Jesus draws out in the deposition is specifically their understanding of and their response to the king himself. What did each of these groups of people think about the king? Or to borrow Tozer's line, what were these individual groups' thoughts about God? Because everything they did was downstream of what they thought. And this is our second point this morning as we look at responses to the king. Responses to the king. Now, the parable was just read for us. Kids who are in here today, in the parable, were introduced to three different groups of people. We saw hateful citizens, we saw faithful servants. We saw a wicked servant. Who do you think God wants you to be? Anybody pinch it? Maybe I'll just get the adjectives. Hateful and wicked. How about option three? Okay, maybe faithful. The point of the parable is really clear. Be the middle group. But there's a problem. We don't know much about this middle group. All we know is that in verse 17, that they have come having done business. How they did business, we don't know. What it looked like, we don't know but they're affirmed as faithful in verse 17. And this is part of the power of parables because often they make the point by using something that graphic designers and artists call negative space. 
So have you guys seen the FedEx logo? Half of you in here are employed by FedEx, so I'm sure you have. Um, but uh, between the E and the X in the, the logo is an arrow. Now, the artist didn't draw an arrow. He just drew an E and an X. But it was what was on the outside that drew our attention to the arrow. And so here in this parable, if we want to know about the attitudes and affections of the faithful servants, Jesus is calling us to see the harsh outlines of the hateful citizen and the wicked servant. Because as we read this, what you're going to notice is Luke and Jesus are pointing out to us their affections, their understanding, and their thoughts on the king. And so we're going to examine this negative space by looking at those three groups, the citizens, the faithful servants, and the wicked servants. So first, we're going to examine the citizens. And these citizens hated the king. The posture of their heart is what Luke draws our attention to in verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. They hated him so much that he did something about it. I hate blue cheese. I have not mounted a campaign against it. I won't eat it, but I'm not writing my senators trying to get it banished back to the trash heap from whence it came. This is a strong hate. This is a hate that they are stirring up. They're evangelizing hate. Why? Because they don't want this man to reign over them. They understand the implications. If this man is king, they have to submit to him. They don't want to submit to him. Therefore, he must not be our king. There is willing, passionate, obstinate hearts in these people who hate the king. And they won't accept his reign. Over the years, in my attempts to share the gospel and to pastor a church, uh, I've encountered people, not many, but some, who have this very heart. Who hate the idea of Jesus, who find the idea of submitting to him completely repulsive. And there may be a few of you in here today who have that mindset. And if you're here today and that's you, I'm glad you're here. It's very brave of you to be here. <laughs> and I'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, I'd like to, to know more about uh, what is your thoughts on God, but I'd also like to warn you that this is a very dangerous place for someone like you to sit because there is someone who has a greater will than your will, someone who has a greater power than your power. And the pages of scripture and the history of the church are filled with those who came to love that which they hated through the wonderful and irresistible grace of the king who saves sinners. But if that's not you, this does speak to our expectations in life, doesn't it? Here we see the real danger of life in this world. In a mysterious sense that we, not being God, cannot understand, God has so allowed the voice of hateful citizens to ring loudly in this life. The most prolific voice we see on TV and we read of on our screens is the voice of rebellion. When the noblemen left, the servants engaged in business, but the crowds engaged in influence. And we feel the weight of that. It would be wise of us to recognize that our hearts in a culture like this will not drift towards the king passively. Our hearts are not neutral, nor is our world neutral towards this king. They hate him, and they do not want him to rule. Now, one day, as we'll see in the end, even of this parable, the king comes back. 
And that king will take these hateful citizens and their puppet king and he will throw them into the pit of hell. But Jesus is making it clear that that day is not yet. The king is still seemingly far away in the far country at the right hand of God. Jesus himself in John chapter 12 calls Satan the ruler of this world. And here's our tension in this delay. While Christ is on the throne, even today, Satan is on the streets. His crowds are loud, and while they cannot harm a risen Savior, they can certainly draw their attention to his church, who is here. And this is why it is so important for us to recognize Jesus' call to discipleship that is helping one another follow Jesus in all of life through the gospel. And that, that discipleship and Jesus' assumption is that it happens here in the context of a local church, caring and supporting one another through membership and, and, and admonishment and encouragement. This world does not want anyone to follow Jesus. J.C. Ryle once says, it is a shame that sickness is contagious, but health is not. So it is our job as those who serve the king to help others follow what the world calls them to hate. And this is where we now turn to those who were faithful servants, the noblemen's faithful servants, and we see that they were loyal to the king. Read with me verses 15 through 19. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minutes more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came to him and said, Lord, your minna has made five minas. He said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So here are the first two of the 10 servants show up here. And uh, one guy made 10 times more and another guy made five times more. And each are rewarded with a number of cities proportional to the number of minas they made and handed back over to the king. Now, before we begin to compare and contrast our own menace to everyone else's menace in here, I want you to notice what Jesus himself says. What does he affirm? Jesus doesn't affirm what they earned. Jesus doesn't affirm their productivity, though that's certainly implied. Both of those are. Instead, what is explicitly affirmed is what? In verse 17. Their Look at the word, faithfulness. Their master doesn't receive the minutes back and say, well, this is it. Kind of like we found some of Jesus' things on Facebook Marketplace. It was worth way more than we thought. We're trying to clear the closet. And he's like, oh, I guess that's better than nothing, but you could have gotten way more than that. That's not the tone the master presents here. The master is exuberant at whatever was earned by these individuals. Why? Because they were faithful. Faithful, to be faithful demands an object. And so what were they faithful to? Were they faithful to their earning? No. They were faithful to the master. They were faithful to the nobleman. Faithfulness in the life of a Christian always yields fruitfulness, never the other way around. If you focus on being faithful to your fruit, you will be faithful to your own self-effort. But when you are faithful to the king, fruitfulness follows. It must follow. And this is the significant relationship these men had to the king, was their faithfulness. It seems to us, again, as casual readers removed from this, that uh, 
you know, it's kind of like when we were, when Stephen preached a few weeks ago, like what we were, we were just masters doing, or servants doing the master's duty. But in light of this parable, the context is really helpful. One Middle Eastern scholar put it like this. Imagine if you were in uh, uh, Iran, where there's much political infighting and hostility, very little tribal security, and your prince went to go travel to seek the throne. And in his absence, he said, keep fighting, keep doing business, keep flying my flag, keep publicly representing my well-being and uh, uh, acknowledging my rightful claim to be your ruler. Well, imagine if you did all of that only to find out your prince lost the struggle. There are so many funny tattoos you could look at online where overzealous sports fans go and get championship tattoos before it ever happens and have the shameful realization that their team didn't do it. That has very little cost besides your shame. But to lose a battle like this is to lose much. Because when that opposite power takes the throne in a contested kingdom, who do you think are the first to be eradicated? Those who bore the flag. Those who stood in light of this prince who lost. The very people who were faithful representatives And we will see that even before Jesus is crucified in the next few weeks in Jerusalem, that his disciples begin to scatter as soon as it seems the power balance is shifting. Even Peter himself will deny Jesus three times to distance himself from that relationship. The voice of the citizens were loud, but Jesus is drawing us here to the faithfulness of his servants, which was louder. This faithfulness was nothing more than a bold conviction of the leader they already knew, of the nobleman who was their master and who was the king. At the end of the day, these servants were not successful in regards to money, but they were faithful unto the king. They took the risk, they opened the doors, they engaged in business, and they were met with the king's favor and reward when he returned victorious from his inauguration. That's the faithful servants, faithful to the king. But now we meet the most complex character. And he's neither a citizen who's openly hating the king, but neither is he a faithful servant, faithful to the king. And we read of him here in verses 20 through 27. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He, that's the master, said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has 10 minutes. They said to him, Lord, he has 10 minutes. And he said to him, or I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So here we meet the wicked servant. And though he is called a servant, 
his judgment is tied to those same hateful citizens. Even though he gave the master back exactly what was given, he was judged as no servant at all. How is this fair? No harm, no foul. Mina for mina. What went wrong? And here's the subtlety of our sin. For those of you who've been reading in our Bible reading plan, this is the subtlety that 1 Samuel pulls out all the time, that not all hate is clearly perceived. Not all rejection of God's rule looks like open rebellion, but there are subtle ways we're claiming to be servants. We hate the king. And this is where we see what this parable is about. This parable is not about the money. This parable is about our view of the king. And the view of the king dictates everything we do. Where the citizens hated the king and the faithful servants were loyal to the king, the wicked servant refused to believe the king. They refused to believe the king. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean his actions can really only be explained by his refusal to believe in one or both of two realities regarding the king. He either didn't believe in the power of the king or he didn't believe in the character of the king. The first option is that he didn't believe the king would come back. He didn't trust the strength of the king or the power of the king or the claim of the king to win the battle for the throne. And so he didn't want to be openly associated with that. I went to, uh, uh, I'm a Tennessee Titans fan. I went to a Titans football game once. They were visiting, playing in uh, Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I went with some friends and one of my friends uh, wanted to support me in my Titans fanship. And so he put on a Titans jersey and the Titans did what they did, and they lost. And, uh, and as we were walking out, um, the fans were kindly offering all sorts of unsolicited uh, help to me. Some commands that I should maybe do, and some firm greetings. And what happened was, uh, my friend, um, who, I won't tell you his name, but it rhymes with David Kessler. And uh, he, uh, he took off his jersey. And why did he take off his jersey? Because the cost of association wasn't worth it. It was costly to be associated with a loser like me. You're welcome. (laughs) But that's what this man tried to do, in a sense, isn't it? He wanted to avoid such a potential. But instead of fully taking off his jersey, he hid his minna in the ground. He didn't have it, he didn't trade with it, he didn't do anything with it. He went and he put it in the dirt so that if things went wrong, he was free of any sort of association. Like Pilate at Jesus' sentencing, he tried to wash his hands. But he hedged his bet, didn't he? Because even though he wasn't publicly associated, what did he do? Well, he kept the minna. If the king happened to come back, he was going to save his bacon by presenting it back to him by trying to earn his favor again as a faithful servant, as a sign of his loyalty, he would give back something. And aren't there many of us in here who at times have been gripped with the same fear as this man? It's not we don't want Jesus like the angry mob. We're not championing a cause against Jesus. We're not getting anti-Christ tattoos on our body. But we can see a reality in where it might be good to have a second king on speed dial in case things go wrong. Well, there are clear boundaries of association and of execution that we won't cross 
in the event that our king doesn't return. We want to follow Jesus, but just until allegiance requires us to declare our hostility to something else. Where falling on Jesus' side necessitates us to be on the other side of cultural influence, of acceptance, of career aspirations, of the person you want to date, of the job you have in mind, of the place you want to live, of your picture of what satisfies. We will serve Jesus to a point, and then we won't reject him, but we'll certainly bury what's his, and we won't want to be seen as his disciple. This is, as one commentator said, a third way that doesn't exist. He says this. He says, there are really only two ways to take a thing seriously. You either renounce it. That's what the the hateful citizens did. They renounced it. They didn't want it. Or you risk everything for it. That's what the faithful servants did. Either fling away your pound, that is your, your menace, or you use it and trade with it. There's no third choice. The kind of Christianity who is mere, or Christian who is merely conservative and those who want only the Christian point of view or the Christian worldview, those people want this third choice which doesn't exist. Throw your Christianity on the trash heap or else let, Jesus, or let God be Lord of your life. Throw your Christianity on the trash heap or else let God be Lord of your life. You see, the only reason this servant would respond this way is if he didn't believe the king strong enough or faithful enough to do what the king said he would do, to come back, to vindicate his servants, and to bring his kingdom. But the king did come back, didn't he? And for each and every one of us, our king will come back. And regardless of where we fall, we will be called to account. And this man tried to sneak around it. And this is the second thing he misunderstood. He tried to sneak around it because he misunderstood the character of the king. He doubted his power and he doubted his character. When we begin to defend ourselves against God, it doesn't end well because it's always too late. To make a defense when Christ comes back is to have missed the deadline for the court date. It never works. And here the servant, he's shocked that the king came back, but he's not without a plan because he has his minna. And he pulls it out and he says, he says, he offers an excuse as to why he didn't get the earnings the other two did. He said, I knew you're a strict man or a severe man, taking what you did not deposit and reaping what you did not sow. Well, what's wrong about this? What is this communicating about the king's character? Well, first, he's kind of presenting this king as a crook, isn't he? Do you hear what he's saying? This doesn't sound like a nobleman. This sounds like a, a dodgy businessman. But secondly, he's admitting what the king expects while telling the king to his face he did not do what the king expects. In other words, he's he's almost saying, I believe you're severe, but I don't actually believe it because I'm here saying I I didn't fear it. I didn't do anything with it. He says you wanted more, so I hid it. And what does the master do? He uses his own words against him. He says, I'm going to condemn you with your own words. If you claim you knew me, but didn't obey me, if you claim I'm so severe, but you didn't act with severity, then you don't actually believe me. You don't believe the own words that are coming out of your mouth. If you would have believed me, the master says, if you would have just taken what I gave you and invested it, you would have made interest. You've made 
It might not be 100%. You might not even get to one full minute, but you would have made interest and you would have been met with commendation, not condemnation. This man instead feared the king and in so doing was condemned by the king. But what did he fear? The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Why is this man who is fearful so foolish? Because he didn't fear the king in full. He flattened it. He knew a portion of the king. He feared the king was a severe man. And is this king severe? Well, how many times have I said slaughter today? Pretty severe. He's a severe king. We see in judgment, he will, he will give recompense to all who reject his rule. He will order the slaughter of the wicked. This man is severe. He is black and white in regards to sin and rebellion. And when he comes back, there are only two options, commendation and condemnation. That's it. There's no third way. But how easy is it for us to fear God partially? To have an invention of God in our own minds that is not actually the view of God presented in Scripture where we don't take God seriously, we will always misunderstand God's severity. And our lives will be transformed by it. This king is severe. But remember how we were introduced to this man? What's the first thing the wicked servant says? I knew you as a severe man. How, did we, how were we introduced to this man? Do you remember? He is a noble man. The other servants knew the character of this king. But here this man refused to believe in the character of the king. Yes, we see that this king's judgment is severely just toward the sinner. But we also see that it is severely generous and gracious towards the faithful. Do you see that? He might be strict in one sense, but he's outrageously generous in another. And that's exactly what the people protested to in verse 10. He says, take the minna away from this one and give it to the other. And what did they say? The other guy already has 10. He got what was fair. But Jesus gives graciously. Jesus says to everyone who has, more will be given, more reward, more grace. Jesus says, Condemnation of the sinner is fair, but his grace towards faithful sinners is not. The first servant in this moment did not make any more menace. He had handed it over. He had done zero earning, but the gracious generosity of the master gave him more. And remember what the master said when he doled out the rewards? He says, okay, you've made 10 menace. Now you're gonna be over 10 cities. My three-year-old has started riding a bike. That's great. I'm super pumped for her. You know what I'm not doing? Giving her the keys to my car. Because it's out of proportion. This man, and so different, this is a different parable than the parable of the talents we read in Matthew um, for a lot of reasons, but one has to do with the monetary value. The minna was a surprisingly small uh, amount of value. And so when this guy gave the 10 scholars debate, at the most it was a year's labor, at the least it was three months labor. So, you know, it's, it's good, not great. Certainly not worth 10 cities, okay? And what did Jesus say? He says, you've been faithful over very little. And so what does he get? Cities. He is not strict 
in a narrow sense. He is generous to the faithful. The reward of grace is always disproportional. You see, there are many of us who wrestle to serve Jesus well because we have a flattened view of him. We see him as the severe and slaughtering king because we know our sin. We know that we don't measure up. You may fail to live your life in light of Jesus, and you may say to yourself things like this, you'll only be angry, therefore I won't try. I'll never do enough, so why do I care? I'm just going to mess it up. But what do we see in this parable? If you come by faith, you're missing the whole point. The master isn't saying that of you. You're saying that of the master. You're condemning him. You're speaking ill of him. The king does not treat the faithful this way. If you are weak, if you are weary in following Jesus, if you wrestle with the amount of fruit you see in your life, come to this king. Never, never, never in all of scripture will Jesus ever turn to the faithful and say, you wicked servant. That is the scandal of the severity of grace. And so the center of Jesus's parable here is not how much you made for the king, but what you believed of the king. Faithful servants work while they wait for their faithful king. Do you know this king? Do you see his mercy? But do you understand the consequence if you don't? And here's where we land the plane today. Application for today. Jesus is making it clear. Faithful servants work while they wait for the faithful king. So what do we do right now in your seat? Examine your thoughts on the king. What do you think about this delay? Jesus said, I'm coming soon. It was a long time ago. Do you think perhaps that maybe sometimes you don't believe he will? That there are other forces, other powers, and other princes who seem to have a more immediate promise and power to provide. But our king is coming. He has already beat death. There's nothing left to challenge him. He will win the battle and he will call us to account. So what do we do? Well, first we realize what the king has given to us. The good news of the kingdom of Jesus, the good news of the gospel is that he, Jesus Christ, did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. The gospel is Jesus' gift to those who are undeserving. The gospel is what Jesus earned and freely gave, not what you earned and purchased. The parable shows that we're not saved by what we earn. We're saved by what we're given. Look back at the text. Look at verse 16. What did the faithful servant say? Notice, because here's just how our hearts work. We read this. Uh, th- so there's a uh, Parks and Rec quote. Ron Swanson's like, I want all of the eggs and bacon that you have. And then he clarifies. He says, I think what you heard me say was, I want a lot of eggs and bacon. What I said is, I want all of the eggs and bacon that you have. Okay? And so what we hear when we read this is often different than what is actually being spoken. So we often hear this, and, and we, we hear that the servant comes back, and he says, Lord, I took your mina, and I made 10 more. But is that what it says? Look at verse 16. 
Lord, your minna has made 10 more. The minna did the work. How did he get the minna? The master gave it to him. Brothers and sisters, you cannot earn what Christ demands from you. You cannot work your way into it. We all, apart from being given a gift of grace, stand as the hateful citizens. We are the ones who have committed rebellion. But Jesus in mercy has come to give minas and to make servants. This is not a story of those who earn the gospel and those who don't. It's a story of those who receive by faith the power of the gospel and submit themselves to the king and those who never had it. Did you notice that's what Jesus said? He says of the wicked servant, the one who has not. Even what he has will be taken away. Brothers and sisters, you might bemoan the lack of faith in your life. You might worry if you will be met with the condemnation of wicked servant. But Jesus is not calling you to first look at what you have earned. He's calling you to look at what you have been given. If you have received the gospel of this king by faith, the gospel will do the work. Entrust yourself to it. Entrust yourself to his gracious power. The power to save us, the power to separate us from condemnation and to set us apart for commendation is the very gift of Jesus himself. If you fear the king, come to the throne of grace. Come and receive from his hands the minna that does work. And then what do we do? We work. We open up the doors of the shop. We hang the flag high. We conduct our business and we live our lives in light of this king. The menace will do the work. The gospel will change your life. Will you realize that your king is coming back and that he has given you a duty? Yes, you must eat. Yes, you must go to work. Yes, you must relate properly to those who are around you. But in all of this, we are called to do business for the king and he has given us what he demands from us. Our expectation is that we make much of him by laboring in faithfulness. And you might look at other people, even in this room, and you might see people who have greater times of Bible reading, who seem to have a greater affection than Jesus. And you might weigh yourself on that scale, but weigh yourself in terms of faithfulness. Right now, you submit yourself to this king. Right now, believe that he's given you everything you need to pursue him. Believe that when you step out, the crowds will be loud and the citizens will be hateful, but our king comes back. Man, our world has this dumb idea of what could you do if you could never fail? We fail all the time. But this king will not. And his church will prevail. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. Brothers and sisters, what do you think of the king? There's nothing more glorious or influential than our thoughts on God. So let us wait well. Let us put our hand to the plow and work. For what stands before us are days of hardship 
and difficulty. But when Christ comes back, it is the commendation and joyful blessing of the king himself who says, well done, good and faithful servant. May that reward be ours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you show each of us what you've given us in the gospel. That we assess and understand this day, this day in tension, in light of the gospel events. That though you have gone off, you have not gone off as any other human does. Many human heroes fade away into the grave. There's only one who has ascended into heaven. And because there are no bones here, we know that there is promise of condemnation there, when, or commendation there. When Christ comes back, we can be affirmed as faithful in him because he has taken our sins. And so, Lord Jesus, to those who sit as this servant, torn in their hearts, wondering how they measure, trying to find a way to please both, may you convict them that they cannot please God apart from becoming a servant that they must submit their lives in whole to you. And for those who remain, may we work well for your glory, joyfully, eagerly, and expectantly. We pray this in your name. Amen.